hello and welcome to episode five of the AdPod. Before I get into today's topic, I just wanted to make you aware of the programmaticuniversity.com, a new on-demand training site which my team and I have just launched. We have launched with a foundations course which will get you or your team upskilled and programmatic. So go check out theprogrammaticuniversity.com. This week, I'm chatting about publishing monetization with the amazing Steph Laser. Steph is the Vice President of Advertising Technology and Operations at News Corp. News Corp, as I'm sure many of you know, is a multinational mass media business with publications like The Wall Street Journal and The Sun. Steph is an active participant in industry initiatives, so it was great to get her perspective on some of the hot topics in publisher monetization. All that leads me to say is that I hope you enjoy episode five of The App Pod. Hey, Steph, welcome to The App Pod. How are things? Good, good. Thanks for having me. No, great to have you on. And for those who don't know you, would you mind giving us kind of a quick intro into sort of your career and then what you do now? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Stephanie Laser. Um, I have been in the advertising technology space for about 11 years. So really kind of the beginning of programmatic advertising and when it was first starting to come into its infancy. Um, I've always been on the publisher side. So I started my career at uh, the New York Post. I moved to the Daily Mail. Uh, and then I actually worked at a small startup called A Plus, uh, where we built a pretty crazy header bidding solution using PreBidJS. Um, yeah, I, I worked there for a while as well. And then throughout the years, I've also um, done a lot of consulting work. So going into publishers, helping them with their ad stacks, helping them with monetization strategies, how they should look at things. So I've always been on, on the ad tech side and and working in programmatic, um, you know, I, I came into News Corp for a consulting gig for a few months, um, and they ended up creating a, a job for me. So I'm the vice president of advertising technology uh, at News Corp. So essentially, what that means is that I assist all of our business units in their ad tech strategy. Um, <clears throat> you know, ad tech has kind of also started to expand a little bit. So I do a lot of work with our identity solution. I do a lot of work with um, our, our data solutions. Um, I'm starting to cross a little bit into some of our subscriptions and marketing platforms and, and how they interact with uh, our overall, uh, you know, data asset. And so, uh, you know, I really kind of span a lot of different things um, at News Corp. Um, and we're, we're really like, um, since we're kind of the corporate, uh, the corporate entity, we're really uh, a service layer for our business units and helping them to uh, do things that, um, you know, otherwise would be very difficult to do individually at their different businesses. Cool. Great. Thanks, Steph. And I guess before we get into kind of some modern monetization techniques, it'd be good if we just take a little bit of a step back and think about how monetization's evolved over the years. And I appreciate that's a pretty broad topic, but be interesting given your experience, some of the interesting things that's happened from monetization with publishers said last sort of 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I first started, you know, I was told it, I was told I was essentially going to manage the remnant inventory for the newyorkpost.com. 
uh, and they set me up with AdMeld and uh, a lot of different ad networks, right? And I essentially helped to, uh, I essentially like played with the ad networks within the AdMeld system in order to, to shape monetization. So that was kind of the first iteration of what programmatic advertising looked like was this like network optimization. And then um, eventually that moved into to RTB as well. And so I was, um, I was there when RTB was launched and helping to kind of look at the different reporting and interesting things that came out of RTB um, uh, through a platform like AdMeld. And then, um, you know, there was also a time period where we really used kind of the two SSP system. That was sort of like the, ne the next one when uh, Google purchased AdMeld um, and, and integrated it deeply with uh, AdX. And then AdX started to use dynamic allocation and GAM. Those were essentially the next, uh, the next iteration. And we always used kind of the two SSP system, another SSP, and kind of played with the floor in between the two of them to try to maximize the amount of inventory because you would oftentimes lose a lot of inventory if you move if you um, did a lot of passbacks with different partners. Uh, so, so that was, I was a big proponent of that from a monetization strategy um, up until header bidding, right? And then when header bidding became something that was um, more readily available, um, having multiple different SSPs and multiple different exchanges competing against each other, you know, that was something that when we had the two SSP system, we'd always refer to as the dream, right? Because if you think about uh, like supply and demand economics and you think about like, how do you raise the highest amount of yield for a publisher? Uh, you know, the way you needed to do it was to get everybody competing on a head to head basis, anything, you know, anything less is going to be, um, you know, inefficient, right. And so striving for those efficiencies was something that we always did. Um, you know, header bidding got you close, you still, um, you know, because of, of Google and the way that AdX integrated with uh, DFP at that time, uh, you know, you still ended up with uh, them having last look, uh, which, you know, doesn't give you as much of a yield uplift as if they did not. And so, and if they didn't have visibility into kind of the bidding that existed in DFP at that time, but yeah, it, it really, um, that was really kind of a big change in monetization and how monetization worked. And, you know, then new products were coming out, you know, exchange bidding, which is now open bidding came out. Um, you know, there were different partners that were doing server to server header bidding. You could use different header bidding systems. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because you would think at this point, um, you know, DSPs would be able to uh, to do supply path optimization a little bit more cleaner and automated than it is done today. Um, but there's still a lot of inefficiencies in the ad tech ecosystem, uh, and because of that. Uh, you know, we've found that a lot of our testing that when you add additional SSPs, you get additional yield uplift, right? And so, uh, you know, I think I think uh, as time goes on and as technology continues to be uh, better, uh, you know, I think more SSPs will not necessarily always uh, be more fruitful and not always help you to increase yield. Uh, but until that point in time, um, you know, that, that is from a, from a testing strategy, that is something that, that helps publishers to, to increase yield. Now, I, I would say one of the things that publishers oftentimes don't do and they need to do and make sure that they're doing is like really measuring 
the impressions in every single piece of the like of the system, right? So making sure that you're measuring, okay, these are the impressions that we're supposed to see on our page. Is there anything wrong that is making our impressions not render? Uh, okay, how many impressions are are being hit by header bidding? Okay, how many are responding? How many are in DFP, right? So there's really um, multiple different levels of monitoring. And if you don't monitor all of those different levels for discrepancies, you'll never be able to find kind of the technical holes in your strategy. So uh, I, I always push for making sure that those pieces are all measurable. Um, additionally, like I'm a big proponent of A-B testing. So making sure that everything that you do has A-B testing behind it um, so that you're able to, to make sure that the decisions that you're making at that moment in time are actually yielding you more, right? Because the market changes so often that if you look at like week over week or you look at month over month, it's just a totally different marketplace. So that's why A-B testing at publishers is so uh, crucial and so important. Yeah, yeah, I think it's similar on the buy side as well, where the market dynamics are constantly changing. So if you're not testing, you're sort of losing out and you don't know what's the, the best route. And I was actually going to ask about the, the volume of SSPs. So you mentioned around how you might add more in nowadays. And I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but how do you get to like optimal amount of SSPs you should be working with? Like, is there some sort of formula or, or like you know, hunch? Yeah, so it, it, it depends what kind of publisher you are, right? So if you're a pure yield publisher, right? And you're just looking to get the highest yield possible, you may decide that you have more SSPs than say, um, a more premium publisher that wants to make sure that they're controlling ad quality in a, in a good, in a good way to make sure that they're not adding a lot of page latency. Um, you know, I would say that there is no like magic bullet, like there's like no magic number, but I would say that like premium publishers shouldn't be stacking, you know, 20 different, uh, client side SSPs into their header bidding wrapper. Right. Uh, you know, service side gives you a little bit more flexibility there, right? Because of the fact that you're not adding additional latency to the page. But from a client side perspective, going super aggressive there is not most likely not going to you. But, but like everybody's websites are different, right? And everybody's websites are architected differently. Like maybe your website is extremely fast because it doesn't load a thousand fonts or it doesn't have widgets or it doesn't have this, or, you know, maybe, maybe that gives you a little bit more flexibility to introduce more SSPs on the client side than you would have before. Uh, but or maybe you do from a from an editorial perspective have a really heavy page and that means that you need to go lighter on the advertising it, it, it's one of those things where you really need to have a holistic approach to how you're managing the code on your page because otherwise you're going to end up with uh, something that's a bad user experience and something that's really slow so you have to you have to really um be cognizant of that and measure that uh, because we all know like slow pages are not good for the user, but additionally, they're really bad for monetization. So we have a, uh, you know, we have a, a distinct, um, uh, you know, need to make sure that uh, those things are balanced in a way that, and that, that we're really measuring things um, holistically. Got you. And, and when thinking about balance, and I think this will vary by publisher, but We've seen a, I guess, a rise in submodels. So 
um, some publishers going behind paywalls or subscription only, or 80% subscription, 20% ads. Where do you see that going like long-term, like the ad-funded model for publishers versus subs? Does, does one win out entirely? Would it be a balance? What do you think? Uh, you know, I think the growth of the subscription model is uh, is is tied to the um, depression of the ad ecosystem that's been created by um, by monopoly, like by having a monopoly that functions within the ad tech ecosystem, right? And I think that that has manipulated the way the growth of the ad ecosystem um, because the competition. Um, you know, competitors have always been kind of pushed down, uh, have have slowed growth uh, of competitors as well, especially in the display ecosystem. Um, you know, in in different ad formats, that's a different story. But the display ecosystem is, which is what most publishers function off of in terms of monetization, especially news publishers, who are a lot of the ones who are garnering these subscription um, these subscription models. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a, a big reason. If you're if you don't have a thriving, growing, uh, quality ad ecosystem, you need to find revenue another way because you have to pay your journalists, right? You have to pay your writers, and you have to make sure that uh, you're able to continue investing in in great quality content. And so, the subscription model, it, it, I think, really the growth of that is is dependent, right? You can either have users directly pay for their content or you can have advertisers pay for the content in lieu of, you know, in, in lieu of the users. So so I, I think I think that that's most likely why we're seeing more and more subscriptions continuing to grow. Uh, I think also there's like an acknowledgement, there's starting to be a, an acknowledgement with the general public that uh, not all content is created equal, right? That it does cost money to produce um, good quality uh, content and news, uh, things that are well researched and trusted. And you know, especially through COVID, you know, subscription models have continued to rise. And I, I believe that is because people are starting to see that the internet can really be a cesspool and <laughs> that there can be a lot of stuff in there that is untrustworthy. And so we do run the risk in that though, that um, people have more access to information, which is unfortunate. Uh, and uh, so I think that that's a model that uh, is very important and making sure that people get high quality um, content uh, is also important. And that it's not just accessible to to a few people. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think just given world events over the past year, so you know, obviously the election in the US, um, a lot of uh, press around what Facebook do, Twitter have taken their stance. We've also had people wanted to find out the source of truth for COVID numbers and, and what's been happening. Um, and lots of that is ad funded. But at the same time, some of that content is uh, maybe what some advertisers would consider sensitive. And I remember I saw this tweet from me the other day where you said, uh, brand safety tech is trash, uh, <laughs> which was amazing. Oh, man, hot take, hot take. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I sort of, you know, I, I liked it. I thought, well, sometimes the implementation of this is very difficult for publishers because you want to write about these, this content because it's what users should know, need to know. But if you have advertisers blocking those keywords, 
they can't they essentially fund it i guess directly so what's your thoughts on the the sensitivity of brand safety and how that can can sort of impact publishers Yes, I, uh, that was my hot take on, uh, on brand <laughs> safety tech. And uh, being a news publisher and talking about brand safety tech, you will never meet a news publisher who agrees with the way that brand safety tech functions, right? And I think what's important to note about, um, about the digital ecosystem as a whole is that uh, publishers are not actually rewarded for the engagement they create. And I say that because of the fact that like, if somebody comes to Wall Street Journal and they read 10 articles on investment banking, right? The way that it works today with cookies, uh, you know, that person can read 10 articles on investment banking. That person can be categorized by a third party data provider as being an investment banker. And then you can target that user anywhere across the internet, right? So the engagement that had been created at Wall Street Journal ends up being essentially leaked elsewhere across the digital ecosystem and buyers can go and get that get that particular ad somewhere cheaper right because they're not going to be uh, they're not going to have as high floors and rates and all that kind of stuff as the Wall Street Journal is going to have but what that does is by decoupling the media with the data what you're actually doing is you're not rewarding publishers for the amount of um, you're not really properly rewarding them for the engagement and and the data that they add to the ads ecosystem. And, you know, even with the death of the third party cookie, uh, solutions like Flock, they continue to prop this up, right? This idea that you can use data on high quality engaged publishers that people trust and you can use it elsewhere across the internet. That's part of the reason why a you know, three dudes in their basement who write a bunch of misinformation can throw a bunch of digital ad, you know, ad tags on their page and they can make a decent living, right? And it's, so the incentives are, are there in order to kind of, uh, the incentives are there in order to uh, write things that are very clickable or write things that are very, that might be false or write things that are very shareable or spreadable because of the fact that we've allowed this data to flow pretty much you know, without rules across the ad, across the ad ecosystem, and we continue to create solutions like Flock that do that. Now, how this relates to brand safety tech is the fact that uh, you know what ends up happening is these news publishers can create engagement, they can create data in the ad ecosystem, and then get blocked even further, right? Because of the fact that they create content that people need, right? And they create content that is deemed unbrand safe. What is unbrand safe, right? When we had a newspaper and there was an article that was written, there was no problem with having an ad next to an article about ISIS, right? Everybody who reads that publication knows that Procter & Gamble, for example, doesn't support ISIS, right? They support the information that's coming out of the Wall Street Journal, right? That's been conflated because of um, because of user generated content, right? Because there's a huge difference between having a PNG ad next to an a well written, well researched, you know, people who who were out on the ground, uh, you know, helping to bring this this content and this information to the broader public. There's a difference, and users know this, between that and 
an actual video on YouTube that ISIS uploaded and PNG accidentally runs an add-on, right? And unfortunately, we were held to the same brand safety standards and news that these user-generated content platforms are as well. And what that ends up doing is it ends up not funding uh, you know, our, our work, right? Stuff that's really crucial to, our, to society. So there's like really two different pieces here. And that's like the free flow of information and data doesn't properly compensate news publishers. And then the second piece to that is the idea that we're held to brand safety standards that are not, um, that are, are unreasonable really uh, because you're making the assumption that the user doesn't understand that on a news publisher, this doesn't mean that this advertiser supports whatever is happening. Now, if you're a cruise company and there's an article about a cruise boat going down, maybe you don't want to run an ad there. And I get that, right? But there is, there's, there is a lot of advertisers who just block news, who block news in, in its entirely. And because we don't get it compensated for the engagement we create, right? Um, it ends up defunding the news, something that's so crucial for uh, for society and for information. That's an, I mean, that's another huge piece. You know, I talk about the big platforms and the monopolization and how that affects um, uh, how that affects you know subscriptions starting to rise and how that affects us not being able to get high quality content out to the general public. It's literally exactly the same um, uh, with brand safety tef tech. It's brand safety tech is another piece to, piece to the defunding the news um, uh, puzzle. Yeah, and I, I was sort of thinking as you were saying, you know, what's the what's the solution? I think on the brand safety side, it's advertisers taking. Uh, more reasoned approach to news and understand the nuance that exists uh, between different publishers and, and the quality of the content. And there are some initiatives to improve that. I always think some of the defaults by brand safety vendors could be made much better as well. Um, yeah. But then on the identity side, so you mentioned Flock, and I wanted to get into this because there's a lot of talk around publishers investing more in a first-party data strategy, um, we're seeing the rise of what I'd call private gardens, um, where um, you have you can buy only by the ads. If you buy through their access point, it's not available through programmatic. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of how you balance kind of like open web access, so DSPs buying you through SSPs, um, and maybe some restrictions, or maybe it's Flock or others, versus kind of like you know siloing it off into your own. So private garden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it depends on how we want the industry to go, right? I think the the thing that we have been historically bad at at the last ten years as an industry, uh, ad tech as an industry, has has really allowed, uh, you know, what I had talked about before, which is like the free flow of data and making sure that. Uh, publishers are comp compensated for the engagement they create. That's one thing uh, that that's been historically kind of bad about the ad tech ecosystem, and you know, propping up, uh, you know, smaller, less high quality websites with with that data um, and adding it into the ad tech ecosystem. That's one big piece of it. I think another piece of it is 
the privacy landscape, right? So I, I think we have not really had conversations uh, with users. You know, it's it's been about advertisers, right? Making sure that we're satisfying advertisers and advertisers' needs. And there haven't been a lot of conversations about how to satisfy the users and the users' needs. And that is why so much pressure is being put on the ad tech ecosystem by privacy advocates, by regulators, by legislators. Uh, but then they've also noticed this clear uh, you know, intersection between privacy and antitrust that makes it really hard to, to function, right? Because a lot of privacy laws that have been put forward they have been weaponized in order to make these walled gardens stronger. Uh, you know, what I'd really like, you know, the future that I would like to create, and, you know, it, it might not be the future that every person on the buy side loves, right? Because like I said, I feel as though we've been, we've been doing the thing that the buy side wants for the last 10 years, and we've been ignoring the other major stakeholder in the internet, especially for publishers, which is which is the user, and and so I I believe that the sharing of cross-domain data uh, is not in the best interests of the user and is not in the best interests of high-quality publishers. So therefore, you know, I believe solutions like Flock. I believe solutions where publishers are not using their own data, their own first party data, um, you know, that, that they may be deemed better for the buy side, but that they're not better for publishers or users. And so, so from my perspective, I really support a lot of these solutions where ads are more in context, right? So if a user comes to Wall Street Journal, they read 10 investment banking articles, on the Wall Street Journal, you know this person is an investment banker, but you don't know that when they're on a different, you know, you, if you use first party cookies, you don't know that on a different website, right? Which means if you want investment bankers, you have to purchase them on areas in which they're inputting the data that says, I, you know, this person's an investment banker, right? And so that to me is, is a way that, that we could start to fix some of the issues that we currently have with the ads ecosystem. I, I think we, we have to also consider the fact that we're dealing with two different sides of the coin here. We're trying to satisfy what the advertiser wants and then we're also trying to satisfy uh, what the publisher wants. And, and the publisher wants to sell their inventory for the highest price and they wanna be properly compensated for uh, the engagement and the data that they create to the ads ecosystem. Uh, you, you know, advertisers want to get the best ROI for the ads that they run. Therefore, they want the lowest cost and they want something that they can back into advertising, like they can back into metrics that tell them that this, this ad worked, right? Um, I, I start to think to myself, uh, how are, are we are we properly compensating the folks that actually create the content, right? Are we allowing this data to too freely flow so that so that platforms are the ones who are collecting data that they've never helped to create, right? And then the entire compensation model is off. And then we've also allowed uh, buyers 
to like we've allowed buyers to basically take this data and use it as their own right now what i also think is that this exists on the opposite side of the coin for the buy side as well right if you think about it purely from a data perspective and not just from an advertising perspective right just like i talked earlier about the idea that publishers are not compensated for the uh, the data that they create in the ads ecosystem, high quality, like high, like uh, not just high quality advertisers, but big established advertisers, they're oftentimes, their data is also pushed out into the ads ecosystem and also helps to prop up small companies and helps to build this, like a lot of what we've, we're seeing now with the big D2C brands that are coming out and using social media and using platforms in order to uh, to get a lot of high growth uh, for a really small company, right? So I'll give you an example. You know, I uh, just recently moved house, and when I moved, I started looking for furniture, right? And I go to a lot of different furniture stores in New York City, and then I go to their website. Uh, when I come back, now they pay for the physical locations in New York City, right? They pay um, to have me to have me think about them in the top, top, of, top of mind. They create social media presence, they create uh, brand affinity, they create this whole uh, way that helps you to make these purchases, this like top of the funnel consideration before you actually move goods at the bottom of the funnel. And they've created this over years, they've created this with investment and money and all that kind of stuff. And so I go online when I get home and when I look at those websites, then I get put into a, you know, furniture seeker segment and then smaller advertisers can use that data in order to pull me away from the brands that, um, you know, I had originally invested, you know, brand time and energy. Now, is this better for the consumer? I mean, maybe, right? Uh, it, it, you could say yes, because I'm giving the consumer more choice. But you could also say that the consumer is more likely to end up purchasing from a um, less well-established, less high-quality, uh, you know, less high-quality furniture provider because of the fact that, uh, because of the fact that, you know, they were they this place is less well-established. They have less, you know, logistics, um, you know, logistics setup. They have less. They're, they're less established, right? Um, so maybe, yeah, it is good, but maybe it's also bad. And maybe what we're dealing with, with kind, kind of this free flow of data exists everywhere across the ecosystem. And it's negative for all parties involved, especially those that have spent a lot of time building brands, um, building brands and building recognition that helps to make decisions at the top of the funnel before people actually start moving dollars. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point around how a brand can shift a category and create competition and maybe take take share. And I was also thinking as you were talking through that around, you know, it's refreshing to hear publishers thinking about advertising needs. And I know from my perspective, advertisers talk about publisher needs because the reality of having a sustainable, ad-funded, democratic, democratic internet has to be, you have to have an equilibrium where publishers are 
you know, making money and investing in content and advertisers are having performance campaigns so they want to continue to invest. And I think in the early days of digital, you know, not to discredit the TV buyer model, but a lot of TV buyers came into digital and treated it in a similar way. They probably thought it was a, a scarce marketplace. Um, you know, Holding Group X gets two pound monocyte CPM with Yahoo. Other holding group was one pound ninety five. Another one was one pound ninety. It's just you know, no one really actually wins apart from the spreadsheet, and it's just created a uh, a very difficult diff different dynamic. So to hear conversations that go where the two can kind of work together and towards like you know ultimately sustainable solutions, I think is what we all have to strive for. And I wanted to talk about prebid because um, I know you are uh, involved with it, uh, a massive component of it. It'd be great to understand um, kind of, you know, for those who are listening who don't know what Prebit is, but also why you're such a sort of, you know, a, a fan of it. Yes, I am a, a huge fan of Prebit and this dates back to kind of the beginning of Prebit JS in like 2014, 2015. Um, when we were really searching as publishers for the ability to have SSPs compete on a head-to-head -head basis and allow, you know, dynamic allocation in DFP made it so that Google really had a significant upper hand. And it was really, the reason why I'm a big pro proponent of it is that I believe the integration, uh, dynamic allocation with um, uh, you know, with DFP really gave Google the upper hand and created a very uneven playing field that helped to stall the growth of some of the SSPs. And I think it was really fantastic that the SSPs could get together and agree on an auction, like a, a standard of auction mechanics in something like pre-bid where everybody gets a fair shot. It's open source. You can essentially use uh, this code to make sure that you're ensuring a, a fair marketplace. And when we had it on the ad server side, uh, a player that was manipulating the marketplace to such an extent that uh, essentially, essentially they were able to kind of tilt, uh, tilt the game in their favor. It was inspiring to see the little guys decide that they were going to work together, uh, that they were going to agree on a standards mechanism, and that they were going to um, uh, to create something that was a little bit more competitive, right? Like I said earlier in the conversation, you know, Google still had the last look advantage, which you know still eroded away some of the uh, growth that I think other SSPs could have had at that point in time, but. Uh, but I, I think it was it, it was always for me the story of kind of David and Goliath, right? Is figuring out a way in which um, you know the little guy can can kind of rise up and and try to create something and try and try to win, right? Uh, you know, since that moment in time and the inception of Prebid, Prebid has changed a lot as an organization. You know, it's about open source, right? It's it's about making sure that any standards we create. Uh, are are open, that they're agreed upon, that the different players of the independent ad tech ecosystem, that they uh, are part of it, right? And they can give their feedback and they can be heard, which I think is the most important piece. Like, 
listen, I don't support everything that pre that comes out of pre-bid, right? There's tons of different stuff that comes out of pre-bid. There's stuff that I love and there's stuff that I, I, you know, I could, I could leave. Right. And I don't think is, is, but it, you know, like we always say, it's much better for us to create things in the open, uh, especially industry pieces than to create them in somebody's basement, uh, to, to come out and say, here you go. Like, here is this, um, a piece of technology and to to let things that should be standards and things that should be community assets of the ad tech ecosystem. Um, you know, we we have this problem in the ad tech ecosystem of, of uh, you know, take rates, right? Is like we, we create another technology that um, is supposed to get us out of a problem rather than creating standards that get us out of the problem. And I think Prebid can help us to cut down on the amount of ad tech tax. I think it can help us to create uh, things that are open source so that uh, technology is available to anybody uh, that wants to come and access it. And I think that it helps to even some of the playing field um, between the independent ad tech providers and uh, some of the monopolies that function in our ad tech ecosystem. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of uh, open source in general. And as you say, like, trying to solve these challenges in the open is better than just people doing it behind closed doors and maybe having kind of the incorrect incentives. And that kind of moves me on to um, a Google. And we've mentioned them uh, a couple of times. What are Google in our tech? Are they a friend, enemy, overlords? Like, how do you think about them as kind of a, a business within the ad tech industry? I think everybody needs to decide themselves on how they view Google as a partner and how they view them as a competitor. I think it's important to note that there's a lot of different conflicts of interest that exist uh, within their business model. Uh, I think that there is, um, you know, this is, there is kind of a, a false narrative that, um, you know, they are, making the world a better place <laughs> a lot of the time, right? Um, you know, search really opens things up so that uh, folks can find information. But I think there's a whole other side to their business uh, that that uh, the way that they uh, actually make money and the way that they make profit has a lot to do with um, the mining of user data and has a lot to do with um, having control of the ads ecosystem, uh, whether that be from a ad tech perspective, which I think was more so true in, you know, 2020, 2010 through maybe 2016. Um, And then I think it has changed a lot over the last few years, um, you know, pushing publishers to move more of their content into Google's first party. So making sure that they move their content into places like AMP, where Google, you know, can at scale, um, you know, collect uh, contextual data run their NLP ag- algorithms on it much easier than they can otherwise. Moving content into to YouTube, um, you know, moving more as you know the search monopoly continues to grow, moving more and more of their ads onto the owned and operated, while still being able to use the data exhaust from both publishers and advertisers to feed, um, you know, to feed their advertising business. I, I, you know, and then Chrome. Right, Chrome is a hu- another huge piece to that as well. So I think, like how you view them is up to you. But I think 
everybody needs to open their eyes on, uh, you know, what's, what's happening and what their business model is. And maybe some of the friendly conversations that we have, uh, partnership conversations, uh, should be, should be questioned more. Um, but yeah, I would say essentially, um, that's, that's up to, that's up to you and your organization, but I would, I would always, I would always think that companies don't necessarily do things out of the goodness of their heart. They do things that help them to make more profit for their share shareholders. Yeah. And I think sometimes you know, in situations where a company has such a significant share of a market, you can start to lose a bit of faith and start to think that it's a zero sum game and that they've won. But if anything we've seen, what I mean, through the adoption of pre-bid, through just generally you know industry direction this isn't a, a a done game google still needs to be challenged particularly in their role in advertising and you know specifically in kind of what we do more day-to-day -day around ad tech um and i think that you know that that challenge should always exist so i still think there's opportunities for innovation and and, and to compete um and i definitely think you know we shouldn't just take this you know just think about it as being a a, a completed puzzle there's still much more to go and it should really be positive some so that you know as we spoke about the users the advertisers the publishers kind of all prosper i'm not sure if having one company dominate so much that really can ever happen and i i definitely agree i think um i think additionally we need to as an ecosystem stop looking so short term you know uh we oftentimes look at what the next quarter is going to bring or what the next six months is going to bring. Um, and Google looks at stuff like, you know, where, where's this going in three to five years, right? Because when you are flush with cash that you've yeah. been able to grow, um, you know, off of the ads ecosystem, off of, of publisher data, off of advertiser data, off, um, you know, everybody else's content really over the last, um, you know, 15 years, um, you know, when you've been able to do that um, and you're flush with cash, cash, it's way easier to think, you know, where are things going to be in five years versus, um, you know, what a lot of publishers are doing, which is trying to, to keep their head above water and trying to keep their journalists employed and trying to uh, continue to um, de deliver out important uh, information. Yeah. 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 I, I totally agree. And I, I think that leads nicely is the final question where we'll have you know, a number of publishers who'll be listening to this and there's been tons of amazing and informative kind of nuggets it'd be great if there was you know if there's a publisher listening who's a bit concerned about how they monetize going forward there's a lot of you know movement uh, happening on the industry different companies doing different things what would be kind of your number one tip to them um to to you know they're going to their virtual office tomorrow. They have to do kind of one thing to think about, which kind of sets them up. What would that be? Uh, become involved in industry organizations as much as you possibly can. Uh, make sure that you are aware of the different solutions that are coming through the pipe, that you know them intimately, you know the pros and cons. Make sure that you're involved in um uh, in, in events and make sure you're listening to different perspectives. I mean, you're already listening to this podcast. So I think that's probably helping as well, uh, to help mold some of your opinions and like take a stand and know what you're doing and what you're, uh, 
what where you where your opinion is but then also additionally be flexible because um I think like as time moves on in this very erratic, crazy time in ad tech, you're going to have to make decisions. Um, and some of them might not be exactly along kind of your principles, but maybe um, that's the decision that you have to make for your company at that time. That's amazing advice. Uh, thank you so much, Steph, for giving up your time today. It's really been appreciated. And yeah, and hopefully I'll see you soon. Perfect. Thank you for listening to episode five of the App Pod. I'm not sure what to say after that. There was so many knowledge bombs and so much forward-thinking perspectives. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And these chats are why I created the App Pod. So I hope you enjoy it also. Anyway, until next time, stay safe and I'll see you soon. Bye.